Welcome back into the Royals Farm Report. Barry Bonds is a Hall of Famer. <laughs> My name is Joel Benfield. <laughs> Joined as always by Alex Duvall, who you just heard interrupt me, Kanye style, uh, even though he is 100% correct uh, in his interruption. And tonight we are joined by, for the first time as an official co-host of this show, third man in the booth, Josh Kaiser. What's up, man? What's happening? Happy to be here, fellas. I, uh, I, I really appreciate the shout out when you did the little announcement there. I have a very good sense of humor, apparently, which I was uh, uh, not not aware of. But uh, I really appreciate the shout out. Happy to be here. Ready to talk some Royals. Wax poetic about these fellas. There we go. So before we get started, I mean, we can't not talk about the game on Sunday. So in ser- like a very in a, as serious and a, like not, in a, you know, as much of an explicit tag as we cannot have on this. What's a task that you seriously could complete in 13 seconds? I, I, I did this the other morning because I was thinking about this. It takes me about 13 seconds to get on my phone, Google MJ Melendez fan graphs, <laughs> click the link and load the page. <laughs> you need to get some Google fiber up in your house. <laughs> well, I mean, the whole if you type the whole thing out, MJ Melendez fan graphs, click, click it, the whole thing takes about 13 seconds. Inevitably, you probably spelled his name Mendelez like I do a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I have so, that issue. MK, no, MJ. 13 seconds. I have been known to eat a taco or two, so I could probably inhale a taco depending on the size. Uh, maybe two, depending on the size in 13 seconds, like, like party taco, taco bueno size, or like, what are we, what are we looking I, at here? I'm going to say like, shout out to Warrensburg and Pine street, but they used to do uh quarter tacos at the fan club on Pine street. And, uh, one day I sat down and took down 26, of those bad boys. <laughs> uh, I have witnesses. They did sit there and watch in disgust of what I did to those tacos, but it is absolutely a true story. One of these days, we're going to get Dixon's to sponsor a segment, and we're going to go down there for all-you-can-eat tacos and find a way to, like, see how many all-you-can-eat tacos you can eat at Dixon's. Okay. I love it. I, I'm, I, it might kill me. My, my old age, it might absolutely do me in at this point. On a good Sunday, I can go, like, from my living room to my fridge, grab a beer, and have it cracked by the time the next play rolls around. But, like, we're, we're talking like 20 seconds. Like if I'm, I can probably book it and like hustle during a hurry up. I don't even know if I could do that. Yep. needs to be out of the cardboard. Cause my hand the, gets inevitably stuck into that the, every time. The, my favorite tweet out of the whole weekend was that it took the chiefs two plays to get into field goal range in 13 seconds. And it took the Dallas Cowboys 14 seconds to run a quarterback <laughs> draw and they couldn't even get the, the spike in time. Honest to God. Do you think, so they went about, if I, if I remember correctly, they went from the, 25 to the 31, right? Yeah, it was a 48 yarder. Yeah, yep. so that's 25 yards plus another 19. That's 44 yards. Yep. Do you think you could run 44 yards in 10 seconds? 44. Yeah. I Maybe. don't think I could. I honestly I, don't think I could. I mean, it would be close, but I probably could. An injury would occur. 100 <laughs> yeah, like, percent of the time for me. 100 percent a pull like calf or something, but I probably could do it. I think so. I think I could run, I think I could run 44 yards in probably seven or eight seconds, but I think like, like max, I think I could, so I'm pretty sure I could do it. But I also think that like people don't consider like the drop back, the route running, the, 
moving around in circles. Like not only did they go that far, but there was 11 people trying really hard not to let them go that far. <laughs> yeah. like, there's nobody in my way of running. Well, a 40, here's the thing. Though, like, were they trying that hard? Because they left Kelsey one-on-one with no one around him. Like, I don't know. I, it felt like they were playing for like to let those chiefs not score a touchdown, not even get in a field goal range. Well, and that was the brilliance. Dan Orlovsky did the breakdown this morning and, and Kelsey's ability to keep inside leverage on that, on that, was it a corner or safety? Yeah. And Mahomes is looking Milano off over this way. Meanwhile, Kelsey's keeping his inside leverage. It like they parted the, like the Red Sea over here. And by the way, in their defense, like you got to go so far so fast, you're probably worried about Tyreek Hill in a lot of capacity. So having Kelsey, I mean, I don't know. That was incredible. Like the entire thing, it reminds me a little bit of the 2015 AL um, playoff run where like the Royals said they were scouting Jose Bautista when he goes to the line with a man on first, he comes up firing second base and they sent Kane all the way around. Like it's just, it's brilliant scouting, brilliant, not play calling, but brilliant execution on the field. Like it is just, that is what championship teams are made of. It is Mm -hmm. doing. And like, as a high school coach, you try to preach to your kids, right? It's the little things. It's the little things. You cannot have a better example of doing all of the little things correctly, like having your timeouts in your back pocket to make that possible. And it's like you want to prove to somebody that it's the little things that matter. Travis Kelsey keeping his inside leverage. Patrick Mahomes keeping the linebacker off just enough to create the window is some of the most brilliant championship do the little things right that you've that I've ever seen. So we can get to our actual topic here in, in just a second, but to, to cap off that game with the touchdown to Kelsey in overtime, did anybody else have like a feel like they had an out of body experience watching that play? Because I kind of blacked out when that happened. I, I was completely sober. I was at a watch party with uh, KCSN at the Kingdom Bar and Grill. It's not open yet, so there couldn't have any alcohol in there. So I'm 100% sober. I felt like I was like, I blacked out for a second watching that because I could not believe everything that had led up from those two minutes on. I, the whole back and forth, everything about it. She's get the ball. They score. I lost my mind. I was too busy uh, cursing McCole Hardman for going out of bounds when he could have picked up two or three more yards. I could totally see that for some reason, instead of watching what was happening in front of me, I was picturing about being two yards short on fourth and game and losing it right there. Uh, and, and then obviously Gabriel Davis would then score on the next play for a 99 yard touchdown because that's how that game was going. But that's kind of where my head was at. And then I didn't really come to until maybe uh, I would say probably a good 15 minutes after it was done. It was the it was the Tyreek Hill play, both of them for me. Like the when he was he was running to the end zone, I was like, uh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it was like, uh, wait a minute, go down, go down, go down. It was like too much time, like, too much you know, time. Minute left. <laughs> yeah. And you saw if you watch the video, Josh Allen turns around when he scores, he turns around and does he's shown a seamless. He said, We still got three timeouts so we're yeah. good. Which yeah. then, you know, with 13 seconds left, I'm not gonna lie and pretend like I just knew they were gonna tie the game, but it was after the Tyreek Hill play that I really, I was like, Oh my God, they're going to do it. And I think Tony Romo said it too. He's like, Oh my God, they're going to have a chance. Yeah. Like all they need is a few more yards and how far can Bucker kick it. But it was, it was the Tyreek Hill play where I realized, Oh my God, they're going to do it. That's exactly. That, that was my thought too. Like I was planning on like, I was like, man, I, I who knows? Like it's, it's hard to doubt 15. Like you just, you cannot doubt what 15 can do, but even with that amount of time, like it's, it's so it felt insurmountable. Like there's no way 
you, you know, you could heave it up. And I was like, okay, get to the 35 and you got a chance for, you know, to him to, to heave it and get to the goal line. But it didn't even matter. They got to the 40 on that first play where they ran that like a little mini Hill Mary play. Yeah. The, the one they ran against Dallas. I'm like, oh, oh, crap. They're actually going to do it. Couldn't be a better player on the face of this earth to run that type of play to. I mean, yeah. You got a dude that can run a four, four, two, five, four, three, forty, and you're giving him 10, 15 yards of cushion. He's going to take you for 25 easily. Well, yeah, so it, was, it was as much of the Chiefs' victory as it was a Buffalo Bills just completely pissing that game away, too. Well, and it's remarkable. They showed – they had, like, the Kelsey mic'd up for the game for NFL oh, yeah. Films. I don't know if you all saw the video, but before the play, um, as, you know, the kickoff happens, Kelsey went up to Hill and said, hey, they're going to man you up, run it like, run like you're running an out route, and I'll get in front of you and we'll go. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly how they ran it, and that's how they were able to get 15 instead of him running a little in-cut. It – God bless Kansas City. They're gonna Incredible. Bop, they're going to bop the Bengals on Sunday. They, Bur- I love Joe Burrow, but he, he doesn't know what he's walking into, especially <laughs> with the, the comments he made earlier this year about crowd noise. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, those SEC stadiums are huge, so I'm, I'm curious to see. He'll, he'll probably play it off because he's Joe Cool, but whatever. Yeah. I'm, uh, and that, that game was like – I haven't had that moment, that magic moment that we had. We had like 17 or 18 in 2019. You're like, man, this team is just built different. But that that's the first time I thought this year. I was like, this is it. Like, this is the time. This is the moment where you're like, okay, well, this is going to be a magical year. And then I then I had to come to and be like, oh, yeah, there's two more games left. They still got to win two more games. <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. The, the best football game I've ever seen. It, it, it was incredible. I saw a tweet saying, was this better than the 2014 wildcard game? And I had to sit there and think about it a little bit. I was at I was at the 2014 I, wild card game and I will never go to a sporting event that is more exciting than that. But as far as like a neutral party, I, I, I didn't really know the answer. I think I think this game had higher stakes and was like more important because the, the football game purely because I as awesome as it was to see the Royals in the playoffs, the run they went on to get there, it felt like house money. The fact they even made it to the playoffs and broke the the 29 year drought. Fair. So at that point, it was like, okay, if they win, great. If they don't, okay, well, at least we know the window's open and there's an opportunity in 15 and beyond. With this, I mean, because I think it also has to do with the narratives that were going to come beyond it too, with like Allen is better than Patrick Mahomes and the Bills surpassed the Chiefs and, and all that. And they put all of that to bed on Sunday. And Did they? The Chief- I've, I'm still seeing a lot of that. <laughs> oh, my God, I know. That because was- it's not about being right. It's about being loud. Like it's about, it's about, and people are so bored with the greatness and Patrick Mahomes has normalized greatness to such a degree that people are just bored with it. So people are still going to say that Josh Allen's better. They're going to, and it doesn't matter because I'm sorry, Patrick LeVon Mahomes is the best quarterback to walk the damn earth right now. Whether people want to believe it or not, he proved it on Sunday. Mm. So that's my, so I think that I think this game was more important than the wild card. The wild card was spectacular and led on this two year run that was just, absolutely incredible but I, yeah. I think i think for the the way things are trending for the chiefs that game was more important i thought it was kind of maybe the wild cards advantage because they didn't have the greatest player on earth that was kind of like a team effort and you kind of like underdog yeah. story i'm everybody's partial to the underdog story so i thought that little part and that little variable in it kind of put the 2014 wild card game over the top for me but yeah it's it's absolutely a question i think yeah it's cool. It's cool to be in an era, and we're getting ready to talk about the future of the of the Royals. But 
in an era where both teams are having more success than they've ever had in yeah. their histories. It's cool to be like, I'm 27 years old. Like Alive. I am in my sports watching prime here in the middle of these two runs. And I, I like literally everybody in Kansas city, my age and around that age, right. From, I guess if you were in 2015, if you were like anywhere from like six, 15, 16 years old to now being like probably 45, right. in that where, where sports still consume, but you haven't like, I don't know. I assume, I hope I don't ever grow out of it, but I assume at some point I will, but to have this be right here in the middle of my prime is so exciting. And I cannot wait to talk about the reason it's going to continue for the Royals as well. Yeah. So, so on this episode, we're going to take you, uh, through prospect rank our prospect rankings were all the way up. I believe article uh, number for our number four player came out earlier today. Uh, so by the time you hear this, three will be out and the two and one you can, you guys can take your guesses as to who it is at that point. <laughs> uh, but we're going to walk it down from 30 and, and go from there. As I mentioned on our episode a couple weeks ago uh, for number 50 through 31, these rankings do not matter. They do not matter. Just gives you some perspective on our opinions as Royals fans, people that follow the Royals system. With that said, let's let's talk about these guys. So number 30, we had Nate Eaton. Uh, number 29, Omar Hernandez, catcher down in a low A. Daniel Vasquez, an 18-year-old shortstop, 27. Uh, Jeffrey Del Rosario, number 26. Uh, Carter Jensen, who is part of the, the 2021 draft class with uh, Frank Mazzucato and others. Uh, 25 through 21 here. 25, Suli Matias, who has been in our top 10 in years past, top five even. 24, Nate Webb, who just put on the 40-man, uh, local kid. Daniel Tillo, who's been on our rankings for a very long time, coming back from Tommy John. Here you go. I got you right here. Um, I got it. I got it. Number 22, Anthony Veneziano, uh, lefty, blows Ched, friend of the show. And then number 21, Peyton Wilson uh, out of Arkansas. who was also part of the 2021 draft class. So we'll stop here for, for a minute. Um, we'll go to Josh. We'll go to our, our, our new friend of the show here, new co-host. Who are uh, some guys with this group here uh, that you have your eye on? Um, I think <clears throat> I think everybody and their mom's going to be looking to see what Suli Matias is going to do. I'm, I'm guessing he's going to be repeating double A. Um, obviously all story of his life is obviously he gets that caper sense down. Um, but he does have the, you know, the walk rate and the power, obviously to kind of balance that out a bit. Um, he had an 8.6% walk rate and a 301 ISO, which is, was sixth in double a. So obviously, you know, he needs to crack down on the strikeouts, make contact consistently with the ball. But even if he got that up just a little bit, think about that 301 ISO in play. I mean, that's just magical. So if he, somehow miraculously turns that around he is an absolute monster so i'm definitely going to keep an eye on him he also has a lot of work to do in right field uh he had eight errors in 48 games between high a and double a so um, i think he's got some work to do behind that if he just wants to come be a dh i'm sure he could be a whole jorge soler at some point if he gets those uh k's down quite a bit um but yeah suli matias going to be you know obviously everybody's going to keep an eye on him but the other one obviously similar player carter jensen um, held his own the first uh, taste of pro ball there with a 792 OPS without much pop. So uh, the pop's supposed to be there in his bat. He only had a 123 ISO in his pro ball uh, debut there, but he has a great line drive percentage. Also spreads the ball out when he hits very well. So um, I, I think there's, you know, that's pretty good profile. If that power comes along, I've got my own Carter Denson for sure. Suli is just, he, 
I, I don't know what to say at this point because I feel like I've been saying it forever. I, I have never, like, it's so hard to be high on a guy like that because it's the results are just so volatile, but you look he hit 23 homers in 91 games between high a double a and the fall league. And he was hurt for a lot of that too. And I think that's the biggest reason why I'm so skeptical is he hasn't had a, a full healthy season really in his experience in the States. He was awesome in 2018 in Lexington, but he got hurt the last month and a half. He was well on his way to set the Sally record for home runs. And then he struggled. He was horrible in quad cities or not in quite in a Wilmington. And then he got hurt and that was it. And then he goes to, to quad cities and he played pretty well. You know, we could see some, some flashes here and there and then he got hurt and then he comes back and then he's fine. And then he tore the world up in uh, high. A goes up to double a helps, helps them win the, the double a title, but the strikeouts are still there. There's still a lot of health concerns, but the power, I mean, you, but you cannot ignore 80 power, 80 great power. So I don't know if he can be a Joey Gallo or a Jorge Soler, any of these three true outcome. I'm going to strike out a crap ton, but I'm going to hit the ball 500 feet when I make contact guys. And he's still only 22 or 23. Yep. So I, I hope he has a big year because he would be so fun to watch the big league level because of the type of power he has and the way he's able to, you know, just man, it, what he can do is just ridiculous, but can he put it together? Can he lower the strikeouts? Can he walk enough to make the strikeouts work? And can he stay healthy? And those are some big, big, big question marks for Suli. If he were able to hit 230 and get on base at a 300 clip, where is he on your rankings? 10. Nine. Yeah, he'd be yeah. AB top 15. He'd be Salvi. Yeah. He, that's, yeah. that's who he would be, a Salvador Perez. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, maybe. Without the defense, obviously. <laughs> Correct. But Off batted end. ball profile, I mean, yeah. Like, that's absolutely what Salvi does. Yeah. You're talking about a guy who's going to compete to lead the league in home runs. You're talking about a guy whose on-base percentage will never reflect his power. And I think that's that's okay. Yeah. Because that's who he'd be offensively. And you can, you can live with that in the middle of the lineup. It's not I, – I think people did – maybe underestimate how low Salvi's on-base percentage was compared to, like, other elite-level hitters. Yeah. And it and it's not a problem. It's just, like, you can't put him, excuse me, in a conversation with, like, the best of the best with that on-base percentage, even with the power. So it's a little, you know, it, it, it would prevent him from being, like, like I, I know Major League Baseball doesn't have an all-pro team, um, but you could still make a couple all-star games, mashing home runs left and right, competing the home run derby every year. And that's the thing with weighing prospects is like uh, the, the, one of the guys I wanted to talk about was Omar Hernandez. And the reason that Omar Hernandez and Sully Matias are ranked relatively close by is when you're ranking prospects, you got to weigh two things. Number one, their likelihood to reach the big leagues, because it doesn't matter how much power you have, Sully Matias. If you can't get to the big leagues, you can't make an impact. Mm-hmm. And number two, the potential to make an impact in the big leagues when you get there. Omar Hernandez's likelihood to reach the big leagues is like just as high as probably 43, 42 other guys on our list. He is going, I mean, Sebastian Rivero is the example. Omar Hernandez is going to play in the big leagues. He might be better defensively than Sebastian Rivero was in low A. He is incredible. And I watched him handle the pitching staff, work behind home plate. I have never been more impressed with a teenage backstop than I was with Sebastian Rivero defense. I'm sorry, with Omar Hernandez specifically on the, on defense and the Royals have shown us their willingness to move guys like that to the system. 
Hence, Sebastian Rivero already having made his big league debut. Then you have Sully Matias, who there's only two or three players in this system with the ability to make a bigger impact in the big leagues if it works out. Like, we, we've seen it with the power. It's not a fluke. If Sully Matias is healthy and he plays every game, he is going to hit 30 home runs, whatever league he's in. It's, mm-hmm. He is going to hit 30 home runs because he will run into enough baseballs and he hits them so far that he's going to hit 30 fly balls that clear the fence because of brute human strength. So if he can get to the big leagues in any capacity, he is going to make an impact. And that's kind of the weight of two guys like that, right? One has an extremely high likelihood to reach the big leagues and an extremely low likelihood of making any sort of a significant impact. One has an extremely high likelihood of making an impact if he can make it and an extremely low chance. Well, not extremely, but a really low chance of making it at all right now. So, how do you weigh those guys? Obviously, we have Suli a little bit ahead of Omar right now because Suli, for all the strikeouts, what was his weighted runs created plus at Double A last year? I know it was one fifteen total on the year. I don't know what it specifically was at Double A. Um, let me look it up. But he like all you know, despite the strikeouts, he wasn't terrible at Double A because he no. hits for so much power, and that's the thing he- is like. His first home run that he hit in double A, you posted the clip when you posted the article. He is diving out on a slider off the plate <laughs> away and he just duck hooks it, but not like in a Jose Altuve way where it like barely lands in the first two, you know, two rows of the Crawford boxes. He hit it over the benches in Tulsa, like almost to the scoreboard. I watched a lot of games in Tulsa as a scout and living in Oklahoma. I cannot tell you how many dudes I have seen hit the ball there. There's not many. And the fact that he was able to take that ball on the outside part of the plate, fooled front hip, completely gone front side legs gone and just take it's dumb. And if he he can, any sort of consistency and any sort of just healthy stretch of play, he's going to crush. Had a 100 weighted runs created plus in double a, he had a 193 average with a 280 on base. Like, in high A, it was 213 and 302, and his weighted runs created was 115. If he could come up and do 220 with a 300, I mean, that's still better weighted runs created plus than most of that lineup that the Royals trotted out there last year. Right. Uh, it's like, like you were saying, a 190 batting average, 193, a 37.6% K rate, and he was a league average hitter because he hit seven home runs in 23 games. Like, I mean, I don't think people understand. Like, we're not talking about even MJ Melendez or Nick Prado power. We're talking about prodigious Joey Gallo type of power where, like, even if he could be Miguel Sano. Like, just that was the guy I was going to bring up. Jag in a lineup that you are carried by your ability to hit the ball over the fence. And, I, and again, I don't want Royals fans to think, we're not even talking about Bobby Wood Jr. Sully Matias has more power than all of them. He has more power no. than almost everybody playing Major League Baseball. And that power alone will carry him. Like if he's the the eighth hitter in your lineup, that is that would be stupid. Mm-hmm. Especially if he can hit like, and like you said, Josh. If, if he even hits two hundred with a two ninety on base at the big league level, let me look at some guys. Like I, I want to come up with a comp because I want to give like a big league. <laughs> I'm like not sure there goal. is one, man. There's not <laughs> really. I want to give like if if there's a good comp in the big at the big league level. Who? Okay, here you go. Adalas Garcia in Texas last year. Yeah. Adalas Garcia uh, hit 243 
with a 286 on base and was still a league average hitter because he hit 31 home runs. Yeah, I don't think yeah. it's insane to suggest that, that Sully Matias could do that. Adolis Garcia last year, for reference, also struck out in over 30% of his plate appearances. Now, Sully is striking out in almost 40% at double A. <laughs> so there is admittedly some work to do. That's why Sully's not in the top 10, despite the power, because the strikeouts are bad. But if he can figure out an approach to where I'm not going to swing, I'm going to totally max Muncy my way through the big leagues and only swing when I feel like it, there's there's a chance he could hit eighth and be a league average hitter with 30 home runs. So before we move on here, I do want to hit on Anthony Veneziano. Uh, I mean, dude, 32% strikeout rate in high A. I mean, he's a little for the level. He's 24, uh, but lefty, lanky, funky levers. I mean, and then he can run his fastball up into the triple digits. He hit 100 for the first time in a game this year uh, with a wipeout slider. I agree with Alex in his assessment on the article that I think long-term Veneziano is a reliever, but that's a 6'5 lefty reliever that hits triple digits with a wipeout slider. That's punching out the world and not ran, not really straight. And even though his command and control are not fantastic, he wasn't walking a, a ton for what he probably should, you know, for what you would think about a guy with not elite command with that type of stuff. So he's another guy he's going to get, I, I bet he's still going to start in double a, um, but that's going to make for a nasty. I mean, he's going to be in the middle of the nasty rotation in double a still. And I would not shock me if he's still striking out the world there and gets like a John Heasley type, opportunity at the big leagues where it's a spot start or something like that, you know, at the end of the, at the end of the year, middle of the year, and the stuff is just going to play because, and he has really good pitchability to go with it too. Um, and I think that's kind of common with these college guys with, the, with that uh, the Royals have taken that, you know, sometimes the stuff is loud, but these dudes still have the ability to, to pitch and to make it work in, in various spots at the big league level. So Veneziano's guy, I really like, I think I had him in my top 20 in my personal rankings that we have him 22 here. So, but it wouldn't shock me if he moves up into the top, you know, 18 or so uh, by midseason. He reminds me a little bit, and, and this isn't a, a, a perfect comp, but of a, a guy like Jake Brintz a little bit. Yeah. Jake Brintz last year in the big yeah. league struck out a ton of hitters, walked a bunch of hitters, didn't give up a ton of home runs, 3.66 ERA. I think Beniciano pitches a little bit better than that. I don't think he's going to walk as many hitters. I also think Jake Brintz's delivery combined with the stuff like Jake Brintz is, is funky. That can't be easy to pick up. And, and Veneciano at the moment pitches more like a starter where it's not quite the violent delivery. It's not quite as deceptive. So like maybe in the bullpen that ticks up. Um, so I think Jake Brintz has some things going for him. Veneciano doesn't, but you can always use a guy like that in your bullpen. Like oh, Jake yeah. Brintz was a mm. really good reliever for the Royals in spots last year. And I think Veneciano, I mean, profiles, Again, it's not a perfect comp, but if you want to talk about just like similar similarities between two left-handed relievers, you're talking about similar guys there. Absolutely. So moving on to our uh, 20 through 11, uh, number 20, Drew Parrish, lefty pitcher, pitched in double A last year. 19, Ben Hernandez, part of the 2020 draft class, uh, prep kid who looked pretty good before he got hurt in Columbia, one of the best changeups in the system. 18, Dylan Coleman, uh, got a little cup of coffee with the Royals at the end of the year, uh, part of a uh, future of a really nice bullpen uh, for the Royals. And then looking, speaking of the bullpen, number 17, Will Klein struck out the world in high A quad cities, a uh, guy we think is really going to move fast. Number 16, Michael Massey, stalwart for that number uh, for that Quad Cities team last year. Uh, one of the better uh, hitters in the system. Your boy is number 15. Yep. 15, my guy, John Heasley. You guys know, should know by now. 
Uh, number 14, Michael Garcia, shortstops went between low A and high A last year. Or 13, Daryl DC, Daryl Collins. Talked about him a lot with Drew Saylor last week. Go listen to that interview uh, if you haven't already. Uh, I know Alex is going to gush about him here in a second. Uh, number 12, Eric Pena, dude that we're all excited about. Uh, 19-year-old got his first taste of a pro, a pro ball in the States. And then number 11, Royals, number seventh overall pick in last year's draft, Frank Mazzucato. Uh, I'm curious, uh, some thoughts on him as well. But Alex, we'll go to you. I know who you want to talk about, so just go to the floor, sir. Uh, Daryl Collins. So um, DC is maybe my new favorite. Well, I don't know how many nicknames. Italian breakfast, probably number one. But um, Daryl Collins is like the, I don't know, like the epitome of scouting meets analytics. Like it's, it's, it's how far do you think the bat can carry him? He's probably a left field only type of outfielder, but he, I know we've talked about him before elite bat to ball skills, the lowest strikeout rate of any teenager in the low way in a long time, almost walked as much as he struck out again, as a teenager playing full season baseball, almost. And, and by the way, in September, until he started to like wear down in his first go at pro ball, first full season, go at pro ball had more walks and strikeouts. So that was not until the very end of the season that he didn't. Um, and he hit, he had batted balls that were hit as hard as like Melendez and, and Prado toward the end of the season. So you look at that, it is the perfect like combination of things to just watch happen because I don't mean to over-exaggerate and this is good. I don't even want to go there. I'm going to get ripped. <laughs> but let's just say he puts on 20 pounds of muscle. He hits fly ball. Like, like let, let's, let's just rattle off all the things we want hitters to do in the minor leagues. We want them to hit the ball in the air and we want them to have pull side power. He does both of those things at great levels. We want them to hit the ball really hard. He doesn't hit the ball hard very often, but when he really gets a hold of it, he hits it harder than just about anybody in the system. We want them to walk and not strike out. He does both of those things. We want them to swing and not miss. He does that. There's really nothing that he doesn't do right now except hit for a lot of present power often. So part of this is like you have a teenage kid who's probably not done developing. His body is physically not done developing. It's going to take time for him to get into his body, get into his legs and hit for consistent power. But when he does, I'm not saying he will get as high as Juan Soto on these rankings. I'm just saying we saw Juan Soto go from a ball to the big leagues immediately. And Daryl Collins has very minor traits to be like an off-brand Juan Soto. I'm talking about Aldi brand. Like you go to Aldi and, and it doesn't even spell ketchup. It's like some like terrible misspelling of ketchup, but they put like the 29 cent sticker on it and you roll with that. That's been catsup. catsup. Yes. I've been there. I, my, <laughs> but that's Daryl Collins. Like the profile I, again, you call me crazy. You call me for dinner. I don't care. I think Daryl Collins is a unanimous top 100 prospect by the end of 2022. I like that line drive, that line drive rate is 22.3 and no errors in 75 games uh, last year. Two he and a, almost two years younger relatively than uh, everybody else in the A ball. His, his so. batted ball profile is just insane. Yep. Mean, he has some of the best exit velos in the system. If he can find a way to get any sort of loft on the ball. <laughs> Yeah, because ground ball rates, he only hits the ball on the ground like 30% of the time. Yeah, yep. like he is 
he is doing everything you would want a big leaguer to do in the body of a 19 year old, like a normal 19 year old, not a Juan Soto 19 year old. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, he's like your typical like high school kid who goes to Juco and then in three years, okay, I swear to God, um, school I coach for kid tried out as a senior. He'd been in band. He had never tried out for the baseball team. He was in the band. He comes out his senior year throwing like 85, 88. We're like, where have you been? Like, what is this? He goes off to a JUCO. He goes off to another smaller school. He gets to a D1 school. And now he's probably going to be the closer at Missouri State. Like some of these kids, like not everybody in this, I know this sounds funny to people that maybe not been in baseball all the time is not everybody hits puberty at the same time. Some kids just take a little longer to get there. When Daryl Collins gets there, he will be like comparable to a Jonathan India type of helium riser from a, as a college draftee, he's going to make that kind of wave. I will call it now. We can tag old takes exposed and we can come back to this in five years when he's no longer playing professional baseball. <laughs> I'm telling you, he's going to be good. He's going to be a top five prospect in the system. He's going to be a unanimous top 100 prospect on fan graphs, MLB pipeline, baseball, America, baseball prospectus, wherever you get your pot prospect list, Daryl Collins will be on it by the end of the year. Get that stock, baby next <laughs> so i do i want to talk about frank mazzucato i have really talked myself into him over the last couple of weeks i think i had him a little lower than i probably should have i had him around 15 to 18 somewhere in that range i don't remember for sure but there's so much projection there with him that I don't think he's going to be top of the rotation. I like, I think Ben Kaderna is a much better prospect than him in that, like just from a ceiling perspective. But I think, I think Moscato has a higher floor. Uh, you're a lefty with really good pitch ability. You're already thrown in the mid nineties with some projection there as a, you know, a bigger kid for, uh, you know, a kind of that the, in that lefty mold with that high spin rate curveball as a lefty, as an 18 year old, like that's just not something you can teach. And to find a lefty with that kind of stuff and like his delivery, I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. Like he has really nice mechanics. I I'm really curious what he does in his first go around in pro ball this year. Um, If he flashes any sort of stuff, I'm very, I, I can understand why the Royals would take a chance on a kid like that. I hope that they're right. And I hope that their pitching development has, change the way we think it possibly has if they're going to go and take some chances on these high school kids early. I'm, I'm really interested in what Frank Malzacato is going to do this year. Per Alec Lewis's uh, awesome write-up of the pitching prospects there in the athletic the other, the other day, uh, apparently his, his change-ups coming along pretty pretty well as well. So got a third, pretty good third pitch to go with that big-time hook. And if you guys can't tell, I like lefty pitchers. I talked about <laughs> Veneziano and Malzacato. I like Italian lefties. <laughs> It's it's incredible how many lefties are coming out of the system. By the way, uh, these rankings are just kind of putting in perspective how many uh, high upside, uh, high floor left-handed pitchers that the this this system really has, which is uh, see feels in and of itself pretty special. Yeah, Mazzucato. If he would have gotten drafted by Cleveland, he'd be like, I would have him higher than probably four or five other guys that we have in front of him right now. Part of it is, and I understand why Royals fans are a little jaded. Mm-hmm. We watched Absolutely. Ash Russell and Nolan Watson and all those guys from that 2011 class fizzle out. I get it. I promise you, I get it. 
I've also seen tangible evidence of this changing, and we've seen it with Ben Hernandez. We've seen it with the college pitchers. We've seen it with Asa Lacey, and I know I said this on the last podcast, but bear with me. The Royals, I mean, just put this in perspective, this this would have never happened 10 years ago. Never. Oh, yeah. I can tell you for a fact this would have never happened. The Royals gave Asa Lacey $7 million and then said, go do whatever you want. We'll see you guys in a couple months. That is change because it's not just that they're not doing anything, but the Royals were hurting their pitchers. And I don't mean like physically, like injuring them, but the Royals were hurting their development. Foster Griffin got drafted with only 92-93. Well, hitting 92-93, pitching 90-91. It was throwing 88 when I saw him in double A. He regressed. Foster Griffin, um, or I'm sorry, Ben Hernandez was drafted throwing low 90s, hit 98 last year. Like the Royals fundamentally, by not coaching their pitchers, were doing them a service by letting them work out in College Station, by letting them go to these trainers, by letting them go to driveline to seek independent um, independent um, analysis on their deliveries and stuff. Yeah. Are, are doing them a service. This is progress. There's a reason that PRP baseball and driveline and P3 and St. Louis are so acclaimed and get paid so much money to do what they do. They are really, really, really good at it. And that's why all these pitchers keep going back. They leave, they go see Cressy. What's where Frank Mazzucato was, was, was working with Cressy out in New York is because they're really good at it. They're down to it. They have it down to a science. They know what they're doing. And for the Royals to step back and say, you know what? Maybe we screwed up. Maybe we didn't do this correctly. Maybe the guys you're working with know better than we do at present. They stepped back. They identified their issues. They let them go work out. And now they're bringing some of that to the table in Arizona. Things are going to turn up. And they may not be perfect. They might not turn into the Tampa Bay Rays or Cleveland Guardians. But it's going to be better, which gives me more faith in Mazzucato and Panzini and Coderna long term. I remember John Heasley when I interviewed him when I first started Royals Farm in 2018. Talked to him after his first go about in Idaho Falls. He was out there with Chris Bubich and some other dudes from that class. And I asked him, like, and I remember you had me ask him, like, what did they, you know, what did they work with you guys on? How did they try and coach you up? And he said, they really just let us pitch. They let us do like all our pregame routine, our training, whatever we did and worked on it. And then obviously, if there was something significant that they needed to change, they do it. But they let us just go out and pitch the way that we do and then go and kind of you know, mold in their philosophy during instructs in the off season. That was really when I think the change started. I remember you were like, oh, that's different, which now we've obviously seen the way that Heasley and Bubich and some of these other guys from that 18 class that are now up in the big leagues quickly from kind of just pitching the way that they pitch and then having the Royals kind of mold in their philosophy and with it rather than we are going to draft you and then we are going to put you into our cookie cutter mold of what we want all of our pitchers to look like which is the reason why the pitching development was so bad for such a long time. We're now seeing the Royals kind of get with the times. Really, that, that's all it is. It's the Billy Bean quote from Moneyball, adapt or die. The Royals have finally adapted. I think there's a piece of it, too, where the Royals, by not overstepping early on, have been able to take a longer look at how, this, how these guys are drafting how their stuff's going to play. Like if you, like, like you said, Joel, if you draft a guy and say, Hey, I saw what you did in college. Let's try to change some things before you go to pro ball. And, and that, that applies differently to high school kids. So let's stick with the college example for a minute that what they were doing in college that wasn't working might work against professional hitters with wooden bats. Like it, things change ever so slightly things adapt a little bit faster. Like 
it's okay to just watch. And the and you talk about Heasley. I we interviewed Jackson Coar and Daniel Lynch, and I asked both of them what 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 is one big thing you've changed since being in pro ball? Nothing. Awesome, awesome. Like we don't need big fundamental changes. We're drafting these guys high for a reason. Now, I know they haven't had a ton of success at the big league level yet. They just got there. Pitching development takes time, and there's a reason there's no such thing as a pitching prospect. Like, you kind of got to draft a bunch of them, throw them at the wall, see what sticks. Um, but I think we're going to see more success moving forward. I think the pitching development, again, I don't expect it to be the Rays, but I think it's going to be a lot better, and I think the, the, the positioning of these guys on our list will make more sense. I want to talk about Michael Garcia really quick. Shortstop, low A, high A, a lot of the same traits. Daryl Collins has, which is why he's right there next to Daryl Collins on our list. The one thing Daryl Collins doesn't do is like have an elite defensive trait of any kind. Michael Garcia, borderline elite defender at shortstop, fantastic athlete, great feet, great hands. Um, Michael Garcia does not hit for anywhere close to the power DC hits for. So we went with the offensive prospect there, a tick above the defensive minded prospect. Both of them have elite approaches and elite bat-to-ball skills that are going to carry them quickly through the lower levels of the system. One hits, One's going to hit for more power moving forward. One's going to play better defense at a premium position. Again, we went with the bat over the glove. But I think both of those guys are potential top 100 prospects by the end of the year. Garcia's probably going to rip more bags, too. Had an 85.4% stolen, stolen base success rate last, last year so. I think that's a possibility too. Somebody else I want to, I mean, obviously we're all going to be looking for Eric Pena. Uh, had, I mean, you could throw everything uh, from 21 out uh, basically on Eric Pena's uh, debut in professional ball. Got to show us what the scouts are kind of seeing there. Uh, kind of remind every, everybody the, what his uh, what his name is. Play with that chest, you know what I'm saying. Uh, so give me some Eric Pena. Give me some eyes on what, Eric Pena. Uh, Will Klein, Dylan Coleman, uh, both of them, like Joel said, struck out or struck out the uh, struck out the world. They also walked. I don't know the the second world. Uh, they they love to issue walks through those guys. Uh, Will Klein had a great uh, ground ball rate last year, so fifty point four percent ground ball rate with a uh, power power fastball power sinker. Uh, very much into that. But the guy that I'm really trying to get a, a look on. Don't see his name very much. We got him at number 21, 22, 20. Drew Parrish had a good K rate, good walk rate, uh, really strong, you know, 28.3% uh, K rate, 7.4% walk rate. His BABIP was a 279, so it seems like he's a little bit tough to square up. Um, so I, I do kind of want to see if he can kind of rebound on that. Uh, still relatively young for double A last year. So um, I'd like to see, you know, if he could take a couple of extra steps. He profiles seemingly a little bit like Chris Bubich. Uh, so I could totally see, you know, um, him being on some more radars by the end of the year. But Van Graff's, uh pipeline. None of these guys are really talking about them. So uh, let's see what Parrish does this year. I mean, uh, I, I could have talked about Parrish, but that would be the third lefty with good pitch ability that we <laughs> right? talked about in, in this thing. So I'm not going to do that. But I do want to mention uh, Dylan Coleman and Will Klein really quick. Mm-hmm. If any Royals fans want to envision what the, the back end of the future Royals bullpen looks like, look no further than those guys. Like, I'm mm-hmm. not saying that they're HDH. But they're they could be they could be that good. I'll just I'll, I'll say that. Just they're throwing fire AC. back there. They're Do what? AC. Ah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> There's one guy I want to I want to run back to that we didn't talk about that I really 
I would be remiss if I didn't talk about him specifically. Jeffrey, Jeffrey, I, I got to ask somebody mm-hmm. how to pronounce his name properly. He had a really high ERA, really high FIP at AA last year. I don't think people realize, like, what he's been through and what the Royals, the vote of confidence they gave him. 2018, one of the lowest ERAs by an 18-year-old in A-ball ever. 2019, he misses the season due to an ulnar nerve issue, which, speaking from experience, is not fun. Um, 2020, no minor league season. 2021, they send him straight to AA at 21 years old, where he is still the youngest pitcher in his league. Now, there's a couple guys younger that got promoted. But on opening day, excuse me, he is the youngest pitcher in the league. The Royals did not need to send him to AA. They sent Johansson Morel to high A. They could have sent Jeffrey, Del, Jeffrey, whatever his name is, Del Rosario, down to high A with Morel and just let him work back. Hey, man, you missed 2019. There was no season in 2020. Go to high A. You're Rule 5 eligible at the end of the year, so we don't really want anybody to see against double-A hitters. Go to high A. Have some success with a team we know is going to be good. And then we'll work you back in as a 22-year-old at double-A next year. They could have easily done that. No, they send a 21-year-old to double-A in his first round of pro ball in three years where he's the youngest pitcher in the league. Like, he throws 95-96 when he's right and has my favorite curveball in the system. Not saying it's the best curveball in the system. It's my favorite curveball in the system. It's gross. It's so good. gross. If you've never seen it, go to at at Royals Farm on Twitter and just look up Del Rosario. His curveball is gross. It makes people look stupid. And the Royals – I think they'll probably keep Del Rosario in the bullpen knowing he's had the elbow issues that he was starting. Like he was in an openers role, only throwing two to three innings max, but he was starting those games, which kind of makes me think, is there a chance he starts moving forward? Maybe a small chance. I don't know. Probably not. But regardless, like the, what they've told us, it's kind of like with the chiefs, like people are always like, like early on, they were clamoring for more Josh Gordon. They were clamoring for more, um, Juan Thornhill and the Chiefs were just like no. Um, the the snap count tells you what the Chiefs think of their roster. What the Royals did with Jeffrey Del Rosario should tell you everything you need to know about what they think about that kid. Now, had a rough year, injury history. I understand why didn't they didn't put him on the forty and protect him from the Rule Five draft. However, I do think he's on the forty by next year, and I really think he's still a big league contributor in the bullpen. We will have our, uh, we're going to debut our top 10. Well, on the podcast, we're going to debut our top 10 right after this. So moving into our top 10, I believe, yeah, the articles are out to number four at this point. But by the time you listen to this, you will know where everyone is. Obviously, you guys know who number one is. But to go to number 10, it's the next guy that got drafted after Frank Moscato, Ben Kaderna, uh, part of that 2021 class, number nine. Uh, Alec Marsh, some of the best stuff overall uh, in the system, was really good in double-A before he got hurt. Uh, number eight, Angel Zerpa, who was the question mark of why is this guy on the 40? And then he goes and made his big league debut, and we're like, oh, that's why. Uh, we got him number eight there, really, really good through between double-A uh, and triple-A last year. Number seven, our guy, the Italian breakfast, Vinny Pasquantino, uh, the first uh, hitter in our top ten. And then number six, we'll stop here for now, John Bolin, who was awesome in the very limited sample that we got in 2021 before he had Tommy John surgery, but he's still at number six for a reason. 
Josh, where do you want to go here, uh, 10 through 6? Um, I obviously, I mean, you guys, you guys have made the entire KC area of any Pasquantino believers. Um, I'm curious to see what he follows that awesome year up with. Um, see him in AAA to start doing the same things he was doing in AA last year and start just abusing things. I do want to see the other side of that is where is Nick Prado in that situation. Um, they do have some bats there in Omaha that they need to work in, get at bats and plate appearances for. So having those two dudes plus probably Melendez at the beginning of the year uh, in Omaha would be ginormous uh, to say the least. So I'm curious to see what happens with him as well as Alec Marsh. We got to see what that injury is coming through, where uh, where he is in that process of coming back. Um, had a just an enormous 39.6% K rate in his six starts in AA. Had a pretty big walk rate. So I'd like to see him kind of get uh, get that walk rate under control. And he did have a pretty high home run foul ball rate as well. So I want to see where he is coming uh, out of that injury and then um, seeing how he rebounds and comes back. There is a non-zero chance, and I know Royals fans won't like to hear this about Bobby Witt Jr., but there is a non-zero chance that nine of our top ten and 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 14 of our top 18 prospects could play in AAA by the end of the year. So I'm looking at the top 14 and top 18. Dylan Coleman absolutely could make it could be in triple a at some point um will klein michael massey jonathan heasley michael garcia alec marsh on hell zerpa vinny pasquantino bolin loft and prado lacy melinda's Witt jr all could potentially appear in triple a at some point next season i doubt that more than six of them are together because they're going to be a double a triple a big leagues and, and kind of moving back and forth but my god that could be a fun year for omaha um and again, I know Royals fans are probably not excited to hear about Bobby Witt Jr. potentially being in Omaha, but the the shortened spring training, I, I, I have no idea what this is going to mean for these prospects potentially. And then Bobby Witt Jr. is not on the 40-man roster yet. So like Prado and Melendez are, but they still have to add Bobby Witt Jr. So I am afraid that he could start the year in the minor leagues. However, you're talking about a lineup that's Bobby Witt Jr., MJ Melendez, Nick Prado, Vinny Pasquantino, we didn't see that at all last year. Those five, those four didn't play together at all because it was Melendez and I'm sorry, Witt Jr. and Prado got promoted and Pasquantino came up to play with Melendez, but then Melendez went to AAA again and Pasquantino stayed at double A. So we didn't see all four of those guys in the same lineup. Can you imagine? Those four are like four of the top five hitters in projections for the big league team. <laughs> They've all be in the AAA lineup together. So what's um, Vinny's projected for? What like a one seventeen Witterans created plus in the majors this year? Yeah. So that would be ridiculous. And by the way, you're talking about a rotation that could feature Alec Marsh, John Heasley, Jackson Coar, Angel Zerpa, like borderline a four A team. That's that's a minor league abuse, is what that is. <laughs> That'd be a lot of fun. Um, ben Kaderna. Oh, man. Add, Let's go there. He and I have both added 20 to 30 pounds of good weight in the last <laughs> <laughs> however many. His, his may be better than yours, but yeah. <laughs> That's so hard Regulate. to do, man. That's so hard. 20 to 30 pounds of good weight. I don't care how young you are or what's going on. Unless you're hitting 
like a growth spurt like Scotty Pippen did back in the day. I mean, that's hard to do. Well, and that's kind of the point I made about Daryl Collins is like some of these guys, they get into pro ball, they get the regiment, and it's like, hey, there's been a, a lot of untapped potential to your physical body that, that could be made here. And then, by the way, when we wrote up Coderno, it was like, yeah, he's 92, 95, touching 96, 97, but wouldn't be surprised if he's flirting with triple digits as soon as next year. And before we can even get to next year, he's hitting 99 on a regular basis. Like, dude, it's January. Oh, and, and <laughs> pull, pulling down 102. 103. A 103. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, what? Like, I thought this would be like a year and a half, two-year progression. He hit it in a few months in the offseason. It's like, what are we doing? Yeah. And, and that's that's kind of why we ranked Kaderna ahead of Mazzucato from the jump. He's always had the higher ceiling. His body, like his physical frame – has just always given him the room to throw harder. And it's like, man, this dude's going to be – he's like – he's going to be throwing 98 in the big leagues. Like, he's going to be throwing 98, 99 with regularity. Like, I don't want to compare his compare him at all to Jordano Ventura because they're, they are not the same type of pitcher. I don't mean that at all. But, like, where Ventura took the league by storm, throwing 98, 99, 101 with regularity, like, it wouldn't surprise me if Ben Kaderna could do that at some point in the big leagues. Like, he just – he is going to have the athletic athleticism and the frame where his body will allow him to do that. And if the Royals help him access it, which in Al- that article Alec Lewis wrote for the athletic, they took Panzini, Kaderna, and Mazzucato to the University of Nebraska to have them run like the um, biomechanical analysis of their deliveries. Dude, this kid, the sky's the limit. Now, could he be the next Nolan Watson? Sure. I don't know. I mean, he's, like there's no such thing as a pitching prospect, especially with a prep righty. There's no guarantees, but the ceiling. Like, if you go back and look at some of these guys, Noah Syndergaard wasn't drafted in the top fifteen even of his draft. Um, a lot of these pitchers, like they develop late, and it's you know it, it, that's why it's a crapshoot. That's why there's no such thing as a pitching prospect. So don't think, oh, Kadern is a second round pick. He can't be. He could be the best pitcher in that draft class. Like, the entire draft class, Kaderna has a chance, not a good chance, but a chance to be the best pitcher in that draft class, including his teammate, Mazzucato. So, um, having Kaderna there, like, that is a, it was a hedge to keep him at 10 because I really wanted to have him, like, six or seven. <laughs> so, let's go into our top five here. So, number five, we got Nick Lofton, utility, he, utility guy, ridiculously good Uh for a, a really a solid stretch of the season in high A. Uh, number four, I can't believe he's back at number four. Uh, <laughs> what Nick Prado did last year was was insane and de- deserving of that. Number three, Ace Lacey uh, flashed ridiculous stuff in high A before he got hurt. Uh, number two, I can't believe he's back at number two. He was number one a couple of years ago. MJ Melendez, uh, one of the best minor league seasons we've seen in a very long time. The home run leader in the minors last year. Then you guys obviously know number one, Bobby Wood Jr., uh, the future of Kansas City baseball, um, going to be in the big leagues this year. He will not be number one on our list at midseason if I had to take a guess. So uh, <laughs> enjoy seeing him number one on this list for, for a little while longer. Josh, you had some thoughts. I do. I do have a little bit of thought. When we were when you did, I read the article this morning and I was like, man, did they really put Prado behind Asa Lacey. I mean, given I, the, you know, Prado's great, great year. Uh, last year, and then you know, Lacey comes in with the pedigree. Uh, Prado kind of lost some of his shine with the with the tough seasons a couple of years ago. Uh, Lacey, you know, pedigree is there. 
But then you start, I started looking into it and Lacey had the 33.3% K rate in, in the 11 starts that he had with the 17.3% walk rate. Uh, that was in high a prior to that injury injury had a hefty, hefty BABIP of 346. Okay. So all this is, this is thrown out there. This is you know not great, but then I started looking to a little bit more and looking at his, uh, his pretty solid Arizona fall league uh, numbers as well. But the fact that he has that high of a K rate as a starter in it's not really a small sample size. I mean, 11 starts, 50 plus innings is not a small sample size by any means, but I went and looked up the Royals pitchers since 2006 that have a higher K rate than that over 11 starts plus 50 plus innings. Brent Fisher in 2006 is the only one that I find. I don't know who that is, but that still seems pretty notable that, Nobody has had that has done what Ace Lacey did in high A last year. Nobody's done that. So I feel like that is in and of, of itself a special and B, I totally understand why he is ranked above Prado in this in this situation. Let me I haven't finished the write up yet. So we're recording this on Tuesday night. Nick Prado's article came out this morning. Ace Lacey will be out tomorrow morning. By the time you're listening to this, Ace Lacey's write up will be out. Let me read you the opening paragraph to Ace Lacey's write up. I'm sure there will be people who see this and wonder why we still have Asa Lacey ranked ahead of Nick Prado, while Baseball America and Baseball Prospectus have already begun dropping Lacey from their top 100 lists. The reason is pretty simple. There are not five minor league pitchers with better raw stuff than Asa Lacey. They just don't exist. You cannot teach the kind of stuff Lacey possesses. His delivery creates some unique challenges for hitters, especially for left-handed hitters, and he possesses an arsenal of above-average pitches that make it impossible for hitters to camp onto the fastball, which is a dominant force by itself. Among all pitchers to throw 50 innings pitch and make five starts between low A and triple A last year, Lacey finished fifth in swinging strike percentage. When he's in the strike zone, he's damn near unhittable. Mm-hmm. He has top five stuff in all of minor league baseball. It is not touchable when he's in the strike zone. And last year, all, a lot of the hits he gave up, I, I and, and like I sound like I'm going to bat for the kid, and really what I'm trying to do is justify why you should be excited. Most of the hard hits he gave up, and there was a – I think it was Cameron Meisner who took him deep. He couldn't get his secondary stuff anywhere close to the plate, which is a problem, and we're getting there. And they were camping on the fastball. They were like, he's going to throw a fastball in the zone, and I'm going to come unglued. He'd throw it, and they would come out of their shoes. Cameron Meisner took a swing. Lacey hadn't let go of the baseball yet, and Meisner was starting his swing. So that's a problem, but the stuff is legit. And, again, I can't, like, we talked about Sully Matias. Lacey's stuff is more impactful than Sully's power because pitchers have an inherent advantage in the game of baseball. Hitting is the hardest thing to do in all sports. Pitchers have the advantage. It is designed for them to win. So having stuff like Matias has power is a massive advantage in the game of baseball. Lacey, I mean, all the all the reports are saying, like, all throughout the Royal system, it's never been deeper. This is a special class of pitching. It's so deep. And Asa Lacey is out pitching potentially Daniel Lynch, uh, Jackson Coar, Brady Singer, Chris Bubich, all these dudes that are already being produced in the system he's potentially going to outproduce them. He already has in his minor league, uh, you know, just as a short stint. Yeah, and and I, and I think the concerns are valid. And the reason he's dropping off these top 100 lists is um, 
the, the control was was bad. But I also think, from what I can gather, and with with minor league injuries, especially with pitchers, orgs won't talk. They they don't want anything getting out, and so we don't have a lot of information about the very specifics of his injury. If I had to guess from everything I've pieced together, the injury was part of the reason he wasn't around the zone. There's a reason he looked uncomfortable on the mound. And when the injury finally happened, it was a, not a blessing in disguise. I don't want to say, because again, injuries on pitchers are never blessings in disguise. However, if it gives us the real Ace Lacey, minor blessing in disguise because he looked uncomfortable he didn't look right he never looked right on the mound and he posted a video of himself throwing the other day and i went hey i've seen that before like that's it that's the ace lacy i've seen before it looked different it looked more comfortable in the arizona fall league um three of his starts were just flat out dominant multiple k's and two innings of scoreless baseball he had one bad outing but when we see the real ace lacy I honestly think people will go, oh, that's okay. All right, fine, fair enough. And with Prado, by the way, this isn't just an Ace Lacy thing. Prado's strikeouts are a legitimate concern, same way Lacy's walks are. Again, pitchers have the advantage because it's easier than hitting. And Prado's strikeouts and swing and miss is a legitimate concern. Now, I still think Prado has 30 home run power in the big leagues. Those strikeouts are a legitimate concern that, you know, there's – I don't think I'd have top Nick Prado a top 50 prospect in baseball – probably somewhere between 75 and 100 because I do think the strikeouts are legit, but the power is also legit. Um, nobody, only one 22-year-old has ever had a better ISO at AAA. That's Jordan Alvarez. Like, you know, I mean, there's there's a fine line between the power not being, like, strikeouts overweighing the power. His power is still there. Prado is still in a top 100 prospect in my mind. But the strikeouts are legit, and I think Lacey and Prado, when you compare them, it's kind of a similar facet in that regard. And went with a pitcher over the hitter. Yeah, with Lacey, I still have the image in my head of watching him before the 2020 shutdown, like a couple weeks before ever the world went to shit, as we've all seen. He pitched it for Texas A&M against Illinois in Frisco. I was there. Oklahoma State was playing in that little round-robin tournament. And I stayed to watch a few innings of Ace Lacey because I knew that he would be in play for the Royals at four in the draft. And the swings that he got, I know college and pro, it's very different, but the swings he got on these Illinois hitters, it mirrored like the Kerry Wood outing. And you know which outing I'm talking about if you're a real baseball fan. Like just, they had no chance. Like they were flailing. And it didn't matter what, fastball, curveball, slider, it did not matter. No one was touching him. And the only reason they lost that game is because AM committed three errors behind Ace Lacey. And he gave up one run and they lost one nothing. He, I think he struck out 11 dudes in five innings or third. It was like 11 or 12 and five. And I'm surprised it wasn't more because of the type of stuff he had. And that was a healthy Ace Lacey. That was a comfortable Ace Lacey. And even when he was comfortable, uncomfortable and not healthy, still striking out over 30% of the batters he faced. If he's mm-hmm. anywhere remotely close, he's elite. And we've seen guys without an elite command grade with ridiculous stuff produce at the big league level. And Alex and I have talked about it. Blake Snell, I think, is a, a perfect example of that. If Ace Lacey at the big league level can give me five, give every fifth day, five inning, five and five and a third, 10 strikeouts, three walks, two runs, 
oh, yeah, you're going to take that every single day. I mean, Blake's don't want a Cy Young doing that. I'm not saying that Ace Lacey can win a Cy Young doing that with the way that pitchers are today, but that's top of the rotation type stuff for a rotation that's going to feature a lot of other good pitchers in it, and you're not leaning on him to be the guy. You need him to be like your third guy. That might be the best third guy in baseball. Yeah, no, I agree. The The ceiling is is through the roof. Like and, the, and if he is healthy and around the zone this year, you're talking minor league pitcher of the year. I'll call my shot there. If he stays healthy for a full league. season. I don't yeah. think he'll get enough. I think he'll be in the big leagues too fast. Like the stuff, is, the stuff is that good. All he has to do is show that he's healthy, show that he can be around the zone, and he'll they'll put him in the big leagues because mm-hmm. he's that good. Like now the competitive window, maybe they won't actually do that. You get the point. If this was a, a competitive year, they would Brandon Finnegan him. Just bring him up. Just throw him in the bullpen because his stuff is that good where you can take him on any given day that he's in the strike zone with all of his pitches because it's not just fastball slider. His changeup's a legitimate 40-grade pitch. His curveball is a legitimate 40-45 grade pitch. Like, he's got two dominant pitches and then a curveball and a changeup that are above average. Like, everything he does is powerful, and if he needed to pitch in the big leagues – he could do it if he's in the strike zone because his stuff will play all that he has to do. Like with Coar, we're talking about making adjustments to the breaking ball and the fastball. Singer, we got to throw a little harder, throw a changeup. Lacey's got all that. All he has to do is be around the strike zone, and he's there. So um, we can stop talking about Lacey and talk about somebody else if you guys want. <laughs> I, do, I do want to talk about uh, MJ Melendez and, and, and the insane turnaround that kid had. Um, but, yeah, Lacey, there's, there's a good reason he's there. If you uh, want to go to Melendez, go for it. I was kind of, I was wanting to head in that direction. Yeah, let's go. To, let's go to Melendez real quick because you talk about a guy with legitimate sixty-five, borderline seventy-grade raw power, and got to it in bunches in the minor leagues last year. Like you said, Joel led minor league baseball in home runs. The the turnaround, like Prado was bad in Wilmington twenty nineteen. Somehow Melendez was worse. Um, struck out like forty percent. Like, and I don't think you guys like not you guys, but people listening, like people don't come back from 40% strikeout seasons. They don't, they go away. They're not prospects anymore. We moved Melendez down and and he got back into the top 10 before he debuted because we kind of came around to the idea that the power's there, the defense is there. Like there's a prospect in here somewhere. He went from number one to out of our top 10 to mid season. I'm pretty sure he went from like one to 17 to 10 in like a span of like, 40 games because we didn't have a 2020 season, but yeah, I mean, the power is just ridiculous. And they, they've totally retooled his swing. Like when I was watching him in Wilmington, he would swing and miss at fastballs that were just a little bit high because his swing was so grooved. He had no chance. And then they adjusted his approach a little bit, helped him get to his swing and, and, and feel the barrel a little bit. And now he is easily in my mind, excuse me, now and he is easily, in my mind, a top 40, top 30 prospect in baseball. The defense, the power, the hit tool, the approach. I mean, the the turnaround, I have literally never seen anything like it. And you talk to these Royals guys, you try to get them to talk about it, and they won't say it. But you know in the back of their heads, there's no way they could have expected this. They, you, they can say they could all they want. I, I cannot be more literal. When you strike out 40% of the time in my, minor leagues, you go play D2 baseball, you go play football, you go do something else, you go sell cars, but people do not come back from that. There are no examples of people that were as bad 
is Melendez and Prado were at high A that went on to have successful big league careers. There are no examples. So for them to have the turnaround they had speaks to the pedigree they had when they were drafted, the the programs that Drew Saylor and Alex Zumwalt put in place in the 2019-2020 season, offseason and seasons, um, and just these kids' work ethics and their ability to put that behind them. I've, I've not seen very many more impressive feats in minor league baseball. And not, not just like, I mean, that turnaround involves slugging 620, walking 17.4% of the time, and only striking out 21% of the time. He I mean, cut that his profile, strikeout rate in half. Yeah, that, 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 that turnaround is bonkers. That profile does not exist on a major league level. No, it doesn't. It does, it does not exist in what they've done. It is, it is irreplicable. It is not comparable to anything else that we've seen in minor league baseball. And it is, by the way, it is great news for the Royals because without those two, um, not that the system would be a mess. You'd still have Witt and Pasquantino and some arms coming up. But those two are going to set the tone in the middle of the lineup, um, along with a guy that I think is being under-talked about. And we can talk about Bobby Wood Jr. if you all want here in a minute. Not a whole lot left to say about that kid. Mm-hmm. Um, we also won't have the opportunity to talk about him for much longer either, so we might as true. well. That's true. Really quick, though, before we boy wonder it, uh, Nick Lofton. <laughs> I don't think people realize how good Nick Lofton is He's because awesome. he, doesn't hit, he doesn't hit a lot of home runs. Hmm. Dude was legitimately one of the best players in minor league baseball from June 1st to the end of the season last year. He played a valuable defensive um, role on that team, second base, shortstop, third base, left field, right field, center field. Where do you need him? I don't think he actually played all those positions, but you get the point. He can. So where do you need him? He'll go out there and he plays a great defense no matter where he is. Rips off some bags, takes his walks, does not strike out, elite plate approach, elite bats of ball skills, and enough power to hit 10-plus home runs in the big leagues legitimate top five prospect. This is, this has nothing to do with his draft position. This has everything to do with the performance he put out in high a last year. Um, don't know that he has the power or the speed, like the, the raw tools to be a top 100 prospect, but everything else is there for him to be a top 100 prospect. If, if you're willing to look past the, the ceiling, because the floor is sky high. So just out of my own curiosity, when you talk about a dude that 10 to 12 homers, Decent speed, can play all these positions, hit for high average. I mean, that that's wit. That's 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 what Merrifield. He's what percent of what Merrifield, in your opinion? Value-wise, 90. And I and, and I think the the difference is wit's speed and base running allows him to lead the league in stolen bases. Nick Lofton will never do that, but Nick Lofton also has a much better approach where wit it's not as bad as Salvi, but doesn't take a lot of walks. Um, and, and maybe Nick Lofton doesn't walk a lot in the big leagues, but I think Nick Lofton's approach is infinitely more patient than Witt's is. And so you have a better chance for a higher on base percentage. So I think the steals and the on base kind of work themselves out. And I also think Lofton is more versatile defensively than Witt is. Witt can't play shortstop. I don't think Witt could play third base in the big leagues as well as Lofton can. So you add in the defensive versatility, you add in the on base potential. And I think I think Lofton is legitimately as good, if not higher ceiling than Witt was whatever did. I do have a bit of pushback on the defensive side on him. He did commit what is that, fourteen errors across uh, ninety games uh, between all those three infield positions. So I do want to see that number come down before I'm ready to kind of put him up next to a Gold Glove finalist. 
albeit a second base gold glove, but still, I mean, we're talking about wit comp and what he kind of looks up compared. I do want to see those errors come down before we start throwing them, throwing them. Boo, next to some like 20 year old intern was running the scorebook in Davenport, Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> errors. Errors. That's a fair point, Josh. Oh. I just, I felt the need to felt the need to point that out, but 100%. I, I do. I do want to circle back to Melendez really quick, just for this. Like we talked about how much he changes approach and, the hitting became what it was. His feel for the barrel is exponentially better than I've ever seen it. The fact that he's able to sit back on these outside pitches and just flick the ball the other way for a double. He wasn't doing that in Lexington or Wilmington. I, that, that just shows you the type of maturity in the approach. And the, I mean, the, the dude's a pro's pro. If you go back and listen to the interview we had with him, I, I, I recommend you do. If you're a Royals fan, listen to the interviews you did with Prado and Melendez. Because the way they talk about the humility that they talked about their failures and the way they talk about their success, I mean, th- those dudes are pros pro. It, it, it's pretty remarkable, uh, the turnaround and the guys that they are. Um, and it, it shows you why they were able to make the types of changes and, you know, the way they're able to turn things around. But with MJ, the dude is insane behind the plate. I think, he, I think he's thrown out 40% or more of runners all three years he's been a pro ball. I know it was up around 50% in Wilmington. I know it was right around there in Omaha, like in Northwest Arkansas and Omaha. And then he played a little bit of third at the end of the year. He's a Supreme athlete. He is going to be a guy that when he comes up to Kansas city, he's going to be able to help lengthen Salvador Perez's career because Salvador isn't going to need to catch 110, 115, 120 games. He can catch like 70 and Melendez can catch about 70. And then Melendez can go play third and DH and Salvi can DH on the days when Melendez is in the, you know, in the lineup, catch him behind the plate. So I think Royals fans are going to like him because not only is he going to be really good in a part of the middle of the order, that's going to be special and hit a lot of homers, but he's also going to lengthen the career of Salvador Perez and allow him to hit a lot of home runs too. Uh, if yeah. we're assuming that Bobby Witt's going to be the third baseman, I wouldn't mind seeing what Melendez could do in right field. I'd rather see Prado in right field before Melendez. Because I, I really think there's a, a scenario where you see in, in so, at some point, either in 2022 or 2023, where Salvi's catching, Melendez is going to be at third, Witt's going to be at short, Pasquantino is going to be at first, and Prado's going to be in right field. It's all good, baby. It's all good. I mean, it's that's options, This is man. what we preach. This is what we talk about. Draft the bat. We will find a position for them when they reach the big leagues. You don't typically plan on all of them actually making it. But here we are. They're all actually going to make it. And, Joel, you were talking about Melendez throwing runners out. When he was at high A in 2019, how old was he when he was there? He was – hang on. Was he 20? 20 years old. He threw out 60% of the runners that tried to steal on him. He Crazy. threw out over half. He threw out more runners that actually stole bases on him at the <laughs> high A level. Like, he's got a cannon for an arm. And, and a lot of those were back picks too. Yeah. Like you talk about the chemistry that he had with Prado where uh, I remember Corey Nido at the time was the, the play-by-play guy, the radio guy uh, up there in Wilmington. And he talked about just the chemistry that had where Melendez just flipping his back pick to first every, and get the guy like at least once a week, it would happen. Yeah, it is. And by the way, I've gone back before and rewound the tape and watched it and watched it and watched it. Minor league broadcasts aren't very good. But at no point in time have I ever seen anything that was apparent like Prado calling for the ball from Melendez. 
just happens. Again, those minor league broadcasts aren't great. It's hard to go off of too much, but um, it, that, that relationship is special. And we talked about the relationship with Prado and Witt and Prado's write-up today. Prado's leadership is, is exemplary of the rest of the organization. Um, and the relationship he's built up with Bobby Witt Jr. is special. And let's talk about Bobby Witt Jr. because he's coming in hot. And I really don't think people realize – like, I know people know that he's going to be good, and I don't think people realize how good. Um, they were talking about the prospect class that was – it was Vladito, Otani, and – Tatis? Was it? No, Tatis. not Tatis. Was it Tatis? Was it yeah. It was one. It was three of those four guys, and they're talking about those prospects. Like, which one do you rank number one? And it was like, yes, like, oh, sure, all of them. You take your pick. Otani was ranked third of that group, and he just won the MVP. Mm-hmm. Bobby Witt Jr. is ranked third in a group of uh, Julio Rodriguez, Adley Rutschman, and Bobby Witt Jr. Right? I mean, it is a special class. Bobby Witt Jr. is going to be so good, and I think it's like franchise altering good because everything he does is special it's fast it's explosive it's powerful and it's humble the kid has a great attitude and like i don't mean to compare him to patrick mahomes because patrick mahomes changed the nfl similarly to like steph curry changed basketball patrick mahomes has changed football bobby wood jr's not gonna be doing anything that alex rodriguez didn't do or help probably trevor story didn't do in, in some capacity He's going to alter what the Royals can do moving forward because they won't have to acquire that piece. Think about the Royals in, in the 2018, or I'm sorry, the 2014, 2015 runs. You had to go acquire Lorenzo Cain. You had to go acquire Alcides Escobar and, and a lot of the pitching that you, you put in place. Ben they Zobrist. have, you have the, the bulk of your team put in place. Now, if you want to go pay a big time free agent to come in and sprinkle some some sprinkles on top, it's done. Most of what you need is done. Now you just have to go out. Literally, what do we think the only hole in the team is center field? Like maybe you go out and get a number one type of starter, like a veteran. Everything else is there. He is going to alter what the Royals can do in terms of what the front office can do to build the roster. And and I really don't, again, even as much as I'm saying it, I don't think people will realize how good he is um, until he's done it for a couple years and everybody go, damn. Like this kid is, he is next. I, I remember when the Royals drafted Bobby Wood Jr. on that draft night in 2019, and Jim Callis was on MLB Network and said, Bobby Wood Jr. can be for the Royals what Patrick Mahomes was for the Chiefs in Kansas City and have that type of effect on Kansas City. And at the time, I was like, we're talking about a 19 year old high school kid, and the Royals don't draft high school prospects very well. Like, I, okay, sure, maybe. And I know that Witt Jr. had the pedigree of a, you know, the one of the best prep prospects, you know, shortstop prospects since A Rod. Like I get it, but still, like it, there's a little bit of a cynic when you talks about the Royals and the draft process they have. They'll and then I him. watched him, yeah. And then you watched him this year, this past season, and everything he did outside of that first week when he was, you know, getting his feet wet and his first go at pro ball. Holy shit, guys. <laughs> we're we're talking about a generational type baseball player in Kansas City. We may only have him for six years. It's gonna be some of the best six years we've seen from a, a baseball player in Kansas City outside of George Brett. I, I I think he has that type of ceiling that he can be one of the best players in the sport 
for a long time and part of a team. And he's getting, when he comes up to the big leagues this year and next, uh, he's going to be part of a team that is looking to compete and going to be ready and young and hungry. And he's going to be at the forefront of it. I don't mean to compare him to Ronald Acuna directly because Acuna has special hands and a special approach that make him, he's going to go down as one of the greatest of all time. And I don't want to put that on Bobby Witt Jr. yet, but there are things that Ronald Acuna Jr. does where it's like, how in the hell? He just, he hit a ground ball to the shortstop and beat it out. Yeah. And then he hit a ball 430 feet in his next at bat. It's like, what are we talking about? Like, who, who does that? Bobby Witt Jr. has those types of traits where it's like, he'll make a play at shortstop. He'll beat out a routine ground ball that he hits a shortstop. Then he'll hit the next ball 430 feet. And you're like, does he just do all of that in four innings? Like, he has those prolific traits to him. Now, I do want to caution, like, the swing and the miss and the approach are going to take some time. He could have, like, that Jared Kellenick where it's kind of like that shock factor of you get in the big league, it's like, whoa, I've really I've really got to re- reevaluate my approach here. But he's got those Acuna-like tools where it's, again, ground ball to the shortstop. Oh, I look up and he's safe. I make, a like, an Ozzie Smith type of wizardry, wizardry play at shortstop. And then I hit a ball 430 feet. Like, what's he going to do for his next trick? Like, Bo Jackson had those types of traits. Acuna has those types of traits. Like, very few people can do all of that in the span of one game. And, again, he he probably will strike out a lot early on. But in terms of the explosiveness and the just being fun to watch, he's going to bring something to the table that not many baseball players can physically do. I, I'll, to paraphrase something that Ken Swanson says all the time, talking about guys play with great football character. Like just the, those little intangible things you can't quite – you can quantify them, but it sticks out. Bobby Wood Jr. plays with great baseball character. It's the, all those things you mentioned, Alex, the, you know, the ability to beat out a ground ball, you know, run a or run like a three, nine down to first base and beat out a ground ball and then go steal second and then go make a diving play and then hit a ball to the fountains. Like that's the type of stuff that he can do. And it's not something you can teach. It's just something that guys just, some guys have, some guys don't. And Bobby Wood Jr. has that. Can we start calling it the Ricky Bobby Witt Jr. trait as he just wakes up in the morning and pisses excellence? I sure. love it. Yes. It is my, my one of my favorite things in the world is that we have these two generational type of athletes in Kansas City and Bobby Witt Jr. and Patrick Mahomes, and they're so good, and they just happen to be in the same city. So their trainer up and uprooted his <laughs> life from Dallas and just moved to Kansas City to be here to train them both. Like, they both go to the same trainer and they're both in the same state. And that trainer picked, packed up his life to move to Kansas city to train them. Outstanding. Absolutely love that. Bobby Stroop, you're doing a great job. Keep these guys healthy. Keep these guys working hard and, and being excellent. And that is one of my favorite, like under the radar stories, like ever. That is awesome. It's outstanding content is what that is. You guys have any other, uh, yeah, you guys have any other final thoughts here? Uh, Thank you all for listening so far. Uh, We ranked though. We talked about basically 30 prospects here, Um, but super exciting. I I cannot wait. It seems like we're not all the way there yet, but I think there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. There was some progress made between the PA and MLB today as little as it might be. They're at least at the table for more than seven minutes. So that's something Um, I'm, I'm getting real excited guys. I think my favorite part about this is there is an actual deep pool of 
major league contributors seemingly in these rankings and that and they're kind of scattered all throughout there's not it's not top heavy it's not bottom heavy we're not waiting around it's sustainability well, this is a factory now this is the actual farm this is not a wave it's a farm and that's what i'm kind of pumped up about and jacked up about these guys when we we're kind of going through them it's done it just seems like they're scattered out peppered all over the system here i love that Josh, thanks for joining us. Um, I'm re- I, for those of you listening, you know by now, Josh is going to be on the podcast um, from now on as we get into the 2022 season. And we've got some more things planned for you. With 2022 and the season we think it's going to be for the Royals, um, the show, a lot of it will be the same. Uh, there will be some things that you notice are a little bit different. We, again, um, bringing Josh on, it's going to be a lot of fun this year. So thanks for following along with us. Thanks for listening. Um, we are really, really excited for what 2022 is going to bring the Royals, what it's going to bring here at Royals Farm Report, how we cover the minor league team, maybe how we add some some extra coverage of the big league team in some capacity. So uh, really excited for all of that, really excited for everybody here, really excited for all of you. Um, so, Josh, thanks for being here. Thanks for thanks for coming out of retirement a little bit mm. early. Calvin Johnsoning your way to, to uh, Royals Farm Report, which he never did, which, you know, I'd Maybe Randy Moss. I don't know. There's probably a better example than than Calvin Johnson, who never did come out of retirement. But let's say anyway. Michael Jordan, baby. Let's give me give me goat status. Okay. Undeservedly so. Uh, <laughs> right, because LeBron is the real. Anyway, uh, yeah, Joe, well, sign it off. Hello, <laughs> well, again. Uh, thank you all for listening. We have more big stuff planned coming up here soon. Uh, we will talk to you all next week. Take care, guys.